1: Can we give the, the worship team a hand? <laughs> Consider that a tip, Peter. <laughs> well, I, I have a confession to make, and I figure this is as safe a place as any to make such a confession. I have a, a bit of a, an addiction, an addiction to historical plaques. What I mean by that is I, I can't walk by a plaque and not stop to read it. I might be 10, 15 minutes late, I might have to cross a, a puddle of mud to get there, but there's something inside of me that is just compelled to go and read the plaque. And, and I wish I could say that the plaques that I'm choosing to read are of significance and importance, such as this is the birthplace of Confederation or some other massive event, right? Uh, No, it could be something as simple as, say, the Schneider House, which is just a simple plaque to say that it's the oldest house in Kitchener built in 1820. That's it. But I'll go read it. Or or maybe you've seen this one. There's three plaques for this one. It's by the old courthouse downtown Kitchener. They got one in English, one in French, and one in German, which just says this is the site of the very first Waterloo County uh, meeting. Isn't that exciting? I've read that plaque multiple times. I've tried to read the, the other languages to see if I can, how well I know my German and my French. Like, I, I've got a problem. So, hi, my name is Ross Gilbert. I have a problem with plaques. Hi, Thank you. Some of you, some of you just confessed something else there, but that's okay. That's okay. You're, you are loved here. So, And I realized that having you know, an, a bit of a problem this way undermines my credibility when it comes to criticizing other forms of music and soft drinks, drink, and so forth. But I felt I needed to get that off my chest in order for you to understand uh, one monument in particular that, that really left a deep impression on me. And, and it's down in, uh, in Washington, DC. It's the World War II monument there. And it's located on, on what they call the National Mall. Which to me, I hear mall and I think of series of nice little shops and stores and so forth. That's not what the National Mall is. Uh, you've likely seen pictures on movies or on, on the internet of what the National Mall is. It's that piece of land in downtown Washington DC where they've got the Lincoln Memorial on one side and that famous reflecting pool. And then on the other end of the land is the, uh, the Capitol building and then even shooting off of that You've got the White House and, of course, the, the famous Washington Monument there. They call that the National Mall in the US. And they've got a number of different memorials for the different wars they fought in. For example, there's one for the Korean War and one, a great one for the Vietnam War. But my favorite one there is the World War II Memorial. And I remember uh, touring around that area when I was down there a couple years ago. And I came across uh, at the entrance, they have this giant flagpole. And at the base of the flagpole is this inscription. And It's a powerful inscription. And, and you can see it. N- never mind. Um, <laughs> the, the inscription, i got to find it now. Uh, it says this, Americans came. Now you can look up back there. Uh, turn, my, turn you back on me now. Uh, Americans came to liberate, not to conquer, to restore freedom, and to end tyranny. And, and that just goes across the bottom of the flag, flagpole. And, and I remember when I read it, I was so impacted by it, but I thought, you know, that, that could be talking about Jesus. I mean, we really could read it this way, that Jesus came to liberate, not to conquer, to restore freedom, and to end tyranny. And I mean, that's, that's essentially his mission statement. It's, it's basically what he said when he, when he launched his ministry. He walked into a synagogue one day, and he, he pulled off of the, the shelf when it was a chance to read. He pulled from the book of Isaiah, and he wanted to share this with everyone. And he, and he, he quotes Isaiah 61, uh, 1 to 2, but I'm going to read 1 to 3 for us. He says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has set me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, given them a garland instead of ashes, of the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so that they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. I mean, that's, that's his mission That's how he began his ministry. Or, or, like how later on the, the, gospel, uh, the, sorry, the Apostle Paul, or Apostle John, sorry, recorded in his gospel in John 10.10 10, that the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come to you, says that you might have life and have it abundantly. You know, I, I look around this world and I see how effective our thie- the thief has been, how effective our enemy has been that's stealing and killing and destroying especially as I see what we've experienced these last two years with COVID and the lockdowns, where, where our hearts are heavy and weary from the isolation, that we're seeing warring against each other and a, and a level of animosity that seems to be increasing, the need to control one another when they don't agree with us, the divisions and the factions that have destroyed families, destroyed friendships, even destroyed some churches over these, these divisive issues. And, and there doesn't seem to be any relief from it. Everywhere you turn, everywhere you go. I get together with a bunch of guys, and every other week, and we, tr- we try to avoid the subject of COVID. And inevitably, we come back to it three or four times that morning, just inescapable. And we begin this demoralization begins to fill your soul with despair and emptiness. And, and even when there's some good news out there, and you think, well, maybe this will be positive, it seems to get twisted by the media because they're addicted to fear and terror because it seems to drive clicks and drive profits. And so we got to at least honor or at least admit that the enemy has been effective in his mission to steal, kill, and destroy. But the story doesn't end there. Thankfully, the story goes beyond that. The story includes what Jesus has done and how Jesus is the one that he's offered life to us and offered it to it abundantly. And so he hasn't come to dominate us. He hasn't come to rule over us like a tyrant. In fact, in Galatians 5.1, Paul said, it is for freedom that Christ set you free. So he's come to liberate, liberate, to restore that freedom, to, re- to restore the peace that we've lost, deal the hurts and the wounds that we've endured as a result of living in this sin-cursed world. And so that's what his invitation is. His invitation to every one of us, to, to everyone in this world, but everyone in this room in particular this morning, is an invitation to experience that rest and that healing that's found in him. And so this morning, maybe you've come here tired and worn out from life. Maybe you're feeling the weight of what's going on in our world, particularly what's going on right now in our capital. Maybe there's things going on in your home, with your family, and your, your relationships, with your spouse or your kids. Maybe there's something going on at work. Or maybe maybe you're struggling because you're one of these people who've been shut down by the lockdown, and you're not sure how you're going to make it. So we have all these stresses, all these pressures on us, and this this weariness begins to just wear us down. And then you add on top of that just our, our bodies in itself, just as we grow older, and they start to fail us. And so whatever, whatever it is that's got your soul so cast down, I pray for you this morning that you would hear the invitation of Jesus, that you would hear his invitation to experience rest in him, because that's what we're going to look at this morning. So let me, let me read to you the passage we're going to look at in Genesis two, verses one to three. It says, thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts by the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done. And he had rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what a beautiful name you have. A name above all names. You're our healer. You're our comforter. You're our savior. You're our redeemer. And you are our liberator. You came to liberate, not to conquer. You came to restore freedom and to end tyranny, the tyranny of our souls from sin and our enemy. And so I pray, Lord Jesus, this morning that you will speak through me in such a way that we would all enter into rest, enter into trusting you in your life, and that we would find our souls lifted up. We would find encouragement and hope and peace for what you want to share with us this morning. In your name we pray, amen. Well, the last time we were in this book of Genesis, we, we commented on how that there is a pattern in this book, especially in that first opening chapter, that each day would begin with God said, and he said what he was going to make, and then he would go and make what he did. And then he would take a step back and, and evaluate what he had created and made a judgment, and it is good, it is good. He said that six times. And then finally, on day six, the enemy says, it is, is very good. And then the writer, Moses, he would close out the day by saying, and there was evening and there was morning on day whatever. Well, now we come to chapter two, beginning of day seven. And we see here that, that the pattern begins to be broken. That, that after day six, when he says that it was now very good, we saw that was, that was good to the max, good to the extreme. It was perfect. There's nothing left to add. There's nothing left to do. And and so now we come to day seven, and and there's nothing for God to do. And so he, he rests from his work. There's nothing left to create. And it says he rested, and he blessed the day, and set it aside as holy and special. So I think it's interesting here, but at the end of day seven, we saw, we just read in the passage, there was no, and there was evening, and there was morning on the seventh day. That's something different. And some commentators said, well, don't read into that. That doesn't mean anything. But I, I don't think that's the case. I think after six days of creating this pattern, to not do it on day seven is significant. And my, my, my speculation is what God's saying is day seven was never meant to end. It, day seven, when we enter into that, that was, that was meant to be life each and every day. That doesn't mean there wasn't a sunrise and sunset and so forth. Of course there were, but his intention on that was that day seven would repeat itself, that every day would be another day seven. Every day would be holy. Every day would be set apart. Every day would be a day of rest. It would be what we typically call the Sabbath. And so we need to understand what that Sabbath, what we mean by that. So in the Jews, Jewish calendar, they would have the seven days of the week and their Sabbath was Saturday. It would have been been yesterday. And they celebrate the Sabbath from evening to evening, essentially. And it comes from that idea that there was evening and there was morning, this idea that it, the day starts in the evening. And so a Friday at sundown at 6 o'clock, that's when the Sabbath begins. And it runs all the way till Saturday at 6 o'clock. And so that's Jewish. That's their Sabbath day, a day of rest, day of holy. In, as Christians, though, we've kind of shifted that day. It became Sunday. That's why we're here on Sunday morning. And speculation is that it began that way because it was Sunday morning that Jesus rose from from the tomb, from the grave. And so Christians would gather in the early church on a Sunday, which when the Jews would have been the first day of the week, that's when they would celebrate. That's when they would come together and share a meal and encouragement and so forth. And so that just sort of carried on to now as Christians, we think of Sunday as our Sabbath, as our day of rest. And I remember growing up, my parents had a teaching, but they were taught about the Sabbath was it was meant to be a day of rest. And, and so when I, was, when I was a kid, I mean, there was no such thing as Sunday shopping. Do you Remember those days? Right? I mean, there, everything was closed. No, no offices were open. No stores were open. No factories were open. Uh, there was no activities for kids like arenas and rec centers. All that was closed. The only place they were open essentially was churches, which is probably why it was filled because there's nothing else to do. Right, And so the only thing open was Sunday mornings with churches. And, and so that's where you went. So there's no work. And, but then growing up as a kid, my parents were taught that you're not supposed to do anything on Sabbath, on a Sunday. And so it was supposed to be a day of rest, a day of lying down in bed, maybe reading the Bible, maybe praying. But that's about it. Now, I can respect that as an adult. That's, that sounds pretty good. Amen. I get it now. Just hit me. But as a kid, as a little boy, that is torture. I mean, I wasn't even allowed to play with my friends. Like, I was twitching. I was convulsing because I needed to run. I needed to play. I needed to do something. But I wasn't supposed to. I wasn't allowed to. Because that's the teaching my parents got about what the Sabbath was. It was simply a day of rest, a day of doing nothing. But what ends up happening now is we become slaves of that day that we're constrained by the rules of that day. And and Jesus in Mark, he says that that man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for the man. And and what that means is that we are not meant to serve the Sabbath. It's meant to serve us. And so there's great value of having taking a, a regular time off, taking a break, and whether that be every week, whether that be you know as well as monthly, whether it be yearly or quarterly and so forth, it's important that we take that chance. We take that time. And so for a lot of people, that's the kind of their weekends. And they, they set a day aside on their weekends. Or, or maybe you work weekends, and so there's some day during the week. And maybe, maybe you go on vacation. Or maybe some places, what they offer their staff is a sabbatical. And they take a few months off just to kind of recharge the batteries and, and reset things and relax and allow... There to be restoration, because what's happening is if you keep pushing, if you keep going, not only does your soul begin to break down, but so does your body. And sometimes the best thing you can do is take a break. In fact, sometimes by taking a break, you can be more effective and more productive in those times when you're not not taking a break. Whereas if you're just to push through, it begins to make more mistakes and, and it's not as effective, not as efficient and making all kinds of problems. So there's great value in that. In fact, in fact, Jesus at times would take a break. Throughout scripture repeatedly, we see this idea that, that Jesus would slip off into the wilderness to just have a time of being alone with his father, just to have a break. Did, you, did all you introverts see that? That even Jesus needed time to be alone? Sheila gets that, right? Amen. Right, So be encouraged by that, introverts, that, that you're not crazy for needing a, a time alone to be recharged. So Jesus was an introvert. That's the that's takeaway from all that. <laughs> and it's more holy to be an introvert. That's the other takeaway. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But, but I think if we think of Sabbath in that way, we're missing the point. We're, we're missing the real invitation that Jesus has for us that the Sabbath is more than just having a day off or a day of rest. There's something else to it because what that does is that it limits the Sabbath to just one particular day, but what happens the other days? Well, now, it's, now it's up to me to work. Now, now it's up to me to, to keep going and struggling. And again, remember what the invitation that Jesus gave us. It was an invitation to find freedom, to find healing, to find rest. And and maybe the most famous passage of that invitation on Jesus' part is found in Matthew 11. Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, Jesus says, come to me, all that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you more work to do. Is that what it says? No. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy easy and my burden is light. Let's let's set the scene here, Then, who Jesus is speaking to, because I think that helps us understand the significance of the statement. He's talking to the Jews. He's talking to a group of people that are living under a law where their entire acceptance is based on their ability to perform, their ability to measure up. that that God's opinion of them and even other people's opinion of them and therefore their own opinion of themselves is all based on their success or their failures. And there's always more to do. And you can imagine how exhausted and how tiring they were feeling. Which is why I think the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gave must have been the most depressing sermon to sit under. Because what did he say? The Sermon on the Mount was all about you've heard the law was down here, but it's actually up here. You thought it was okay that you haven't killed anyone yet today, but you've thought about it and you've dreamt about it. And Jesus says, actually, the law says, don't even think about it. And so he was establishing the law as to where it ought to be. It wasn't law 2.0. It was the original law and the original intent, because he says, you got to be perfect. As perfect as who? as your heavenly Father is perfect. That must have been the most depressing day that any Jew ever sat under because they would realize, I can't do this. And that wasn't the point. It wasn't about measuring up to the law. It was about coming to Jesus that he would establish us as oaks of righteousness. And so this is the invitation. He says, I know you're under the burden of performing. You're under this burden of striving and struggling in your own strength and your own power. He says, come to me and I'll give you rest. What I have to offer you is an easier life, a more restful life, one of healing. The, the problem is, though, if we, if we understand that the, the rest that Jesus is offering us is simply about coming to Jesus for salvation, so that I'm, I'm forgiven and I receive this gift of righteousness but, and I'm going to heaven one day, but now it's up to me and I'm going to work and I'm going to struggle and every so often I'll get a day off to kind of charge up my batteries and then I go back into it on my own, you and I will slip back into a self-effort program where, where we will think now it's up to me to live for Jesus, that it's up to me to somehow do my best imitation of Jesus, to live like him. And to try to be compassionate and try to be, uh, to be kind and so forth. To have this, this Jesus mentality even. Where once in a while he gives me a day off. But the problem is, that's not what he's inviting us to. He, he's not inviting you and I to live for him. He's inviting us to trust him to live through us. To be the source and the power in all that we're doing each day and each moment that we would rest in him. That's this idea, this, this permanent rest that he's offering to us. But again, I think too often we slip back into that mindset that it's up to me now. Let, let me illustrate to you this way. Uh, imagine you're, you're going on a journey and, and you got you to go for a long walk. It's more than a hike. That's just an hour or two. No, you've got, maybe, maybe you're going to cross the country. It's a long, arduous trek. You can imagine, after just a few hours, how exhausted and how tired you are. And you sort of begin to drag your feet. And along comes Jesus, but he shows up in the form of a car. I mean, a nice car. Because it's an illustration. You can do whatever you want with it. So let's make it a Ferrari. (laughs) V10, right? Nice one. And, And this beautiful engine, beautiful power in there, and leather seats, heated leather seats, which is important at this time of year. right? So it's this beautiful car. And that's Jesus. He shows up and he says, jump in. I know you're tired. I know you're exhausted. Jump in. And you're looking at this Ferrari and you're thinking, man, that's, that's a gift. I, I, who's going to turn down a Ferrari? Right? I don't care what the insurance costs. I got a Ferrari. So, so you accept this gift and you're all excited about this beautiful gift. You now possess the Ferrari. It belongs to you. That's sort of like Salvation. You accept Jesus, and you receive Jesus, and you get everything with Jesus. You get his love, and his holiness, and his rights. It, it belongs to you now. But now you've got your track to continue. And so what we do now is we get in behind the, the Ferrari, and we start to push it. I mean, we stick it in neutral, of course. That would, that would be dumb to put it in first gear. No, no, you put it in neutral, and you push the Ferrari now along the way. And, and it's great when it's going downhill it's not bad when you're going on a flat surface. But then you come up to these uphill segments. And it gets real tough. And you think about it. And you get some counsel. And you, you read some books. And you come back and you say, I got to use my legs more. And I got to really bear down. And I just got to try harder. And you just push and you push and you push. And for many people, that's the Christian life where they think they got to be the source of power when they've got the beautiful power of the car, of Jesus. And so what Jesus is inviting us to do is to jump in the car, turn the key, turn on that that, that beautiful rumble. Oh, my soul, that rumble is gorgeous. Look it up. You'll understand, right? And and so turn the key and start that sucker up and let the power of the car move you. And that's what we're looking for in this Christian life, that we're going to take advantage of Jesus in him rather than living out of our own very limited skills and limited power. And that's the Sabbath rest that each of us can experience. Whether you're, you're relaxing on a cruise ship, whether you're lying on the couch watching football, whether you're, you're looking after the kids while you're at work, whether you're folding laundry, whether you're making dinner, whatever it is you're doing, you and I could experience that kind of Sabbath rest. Because the rest that he's offering us is not passivity. It's not lying in bed doing nothing. It's continuing on to live today. Let me, let me share why, why I think that is what he's offering us today. Because really, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 4 expressed this to us. That it was the invitation. So beginning in verse 1, the writer writes, he goes, therefore, let us fear if... While a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we've had good news preached to us, just as they also, speaking of the children of Israel, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. So he's saying they heard it, they heard the invitation, but they never actually trusted God with that invitation. For we who have believed entered at rest, just as he has said, As I swore by my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. You can see the the writer now is hearkening back to Genesis. But, But look what he goes on. He says, For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day. I love that, by the way. Do you notice the writer of Hebrews here? Somewhere God said, I mean, it's in the book of Genesis, really, chapter 2. It's not that hard to find, right? And yet, even, even the writer goes somewhere. So if you've ever, like, I know somewhere in the Bible it says, feel good, you're in good company, all right? I just wanted to share that part with you, right? Uh, but so, for he said, somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached them, fail to enter because of disobedience. For again, fixes a certain day. Today, saying through David after so long a time, just as he has has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua, remember Joshua led them out of the wilderness into Canaan, into the promised land. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. So he's he's picturing this idea of how the children of Israel were leaving the wilderness to go into the promised land, this land of of plenty, this land of rest, Canaan. And too often, our, our hymnology in particular, the theology we get from our hymns, has portrayed Canaan as the picture of, of heaven, that, that when we die, that's when we're crossing the Jordan River. When we die, that's when we go into this permanent rest up in heaven. And so that's what we have to look forward to. But in the meantime, it's a, it's a mean time. Get out and push. That's not what he's referring to because Canaan's not a picture of heaven. Canaan's a picture of the abundant life that Jesus is offering you and I right now. It's, it's a picture of resting in him today. That's the invitation. And, and I say that because he's saying, today, let us be diligent to enter in that rest. If he was talking about heaven, then you would expect the writer of Hebrews to then say, Now I'm all going to pass out some Kool Aid, take a drink, and we're all going to get on the rocket ship and show up in heaven. That's not what he's doing, right? He's not inviting the church to mass suicide. He's saying there's a rest that is available for you and I right now, right here. And he's inviting us to be diligent to entering into that rest. Well, why don't we just experience this rest all the time? Why is there this this idea of being diligent to it? Because the reality is nobody constantly lives in this state of rest. Right? Nobody does. So if you're thinking, man, I struggle, welcome to the human race. Right? We all struggle. We all vacillate in and out of it at times. The question is, well, what causes us to miss out on it? And, and the answer is one word. It's unbelief. That's what the writer of Hebrews was getting at. This, specifically, it's an unbelief in the goodness of God and the power of God replaced with the belief that it's up to me. That, that I need to be the source of my own power and my own strength and my own ability. And so I, I believe that God won't come through. That He's, he's not going to be enough for me. That, that, that I need to go and look to somewhere else, myself or other people or something or my circumstances, and that, that, he, that I need to do something. In fact, it makes sense that I need to do something. I mean, clearly God expects me to to pull my own weight and do some things on my own. And and so now when I'm feeling alone and I'm face to face with that challenge, I gotta I gotta dig deep. I gotta work harder. And and so what ends up happening is I I begin to experience things like fear and anxiety. And, and being overwhelmed by my circumstances to the point where I feel like I need, I need to get some control. I need to get control on my life. I gotta I got control the world at large and what's going on in politics and the government and, or, or I gotta control what's happening at work or, or I gotta control my spouse or I gotta control my kids. I just gotta get some kind of control in my life so I don't get hurt, so I don't get overwhelmed. Or, or I begin to think about, I just need some, some guidelines. I need some standards. I need some rules. I need, I need some law to live by. And that way I'll know I'm doing okay. That way I know that I'm pleasing. And that way I know that I'm making good choices. And, and that way I'll be able to overcome this sense of shame and guilt. Because I, I haven't struggled with that anymore. I don't struggle with that addiction, that, that drinking problem or overeating or pornography or, or I don't struggle with this sin, whatever it is. I, I just need to, to guard myself against those things. And so we double down on that. And then even if you are successful in all that, it really just stirs up pride. The sense that I can do it, that I can pull it off. And it's all self-effort. Because I'm the one who's trying to engineer a solution out of this problem. I'm the one trying to organize and, and figure out how to, how to push my way through the problem to find this power and to struggle through whatever I'm up against. And it's all sin. Not, not because it's immoral. Not because you're lying and you're cheating and you're manipulating and you're, you're taking advantage of other people. That's not what makes it sin. Sin. Romans 14, 23 says, whatever is not of faith, whatever is not trusting Jesus is sin. And so there might be some very moral, good-looking things that you're doing, but because it's not coming from Jesus, it's missing the mark. It's missing the point of it because it's trusting Jesus that's the key. And so the result of this, of living this way, is really just a thinned out and weary soul where you just feel like you're, you're one millimeter, like you just spread so thin, one millimeter thick, just exhausted and tired. And that makes sense, because in Romans 6.23, Paul tells us the wages of sin is death. When we're trusting in the flesh, when we're trusting in ourselves, because we're not trusting in Jesus, we can expect to experience death. Not separation from God, but experience death in our soul and even in our bodies. And that's that experience of panic and anxiety, that sense of being overwhelmed and out of control. It's being easily frustrated with other people because they're blocking our goals. They're not making life easier for us. And so we fail to offer compassion and understanding and grace and love. Instead, we offer anger and name-calling and criticism and tearing other people down. And we look to run away and hide from life's challenges, just escape, just run away, hide. Even at times wishing life itself would end, that, that either, either Jesus would, would come back and just take us all home and it would be the end, or maybe I could just slip away quietly in my night because I'm, I'm just too overwhelmed with tomorrow. You know, I, I wish I could stand up here and say, you know, studying for this, this message the last couple weeks and preparing for it, Jesus and I have had a great time resting. And I've been experiencing him. And it's just been this, this, this beautiful time of rest, which I can now speak to you from and encourage you into that. I wish I could say that. But apparently, I needed to learn the other lesson. Because this last week in particular has just been really, really miserable. And I, I, I felt all this, this tension in my shoulders. And, I, and I, find, I found myself just constantly thinking about what's going on in this world, particularly what's going on in our capital right now. And, and watching the, the animosity being played out. Now, please understand, one side is not better than the other side. Both are sort of mere images of each other. Because you've got people walking up to the Capitol and they're threatening the violence and, and it's a very small number, but there's a number of other people that have some very colorful messages for our prime minister. And that's not Jesus. And then you got other people who, rather than engaging in debate, have decided to just call names. Bigots, racist, sexist, misogynistic, KKK. And they're just lobbing insults. Back and forth, and I'm sitting here and I'm watching it, and I'm watching it play out, seeing how each side is spinning the argument to their advantage, and it's angering me, and I'm getting frustrated, and I'm, I'm, I'm starting to realize how old I am because I want to write letters to the editor now. <laughs> I, truth is, I actually did. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, a, I'm getting old, Norm. Make room. Make room. I always joke, that's the sign. That's how I I know I'm old. When I write a letter to the editor, and I did. I was so frustrated by an article I read that was so slanted by it. And I just felt this, this thinness in my soul, this frustration, because my eyes were off of Jesus. And they're on this world. But I want to submit to you something, that that anxiety That frustration, that tension that I was feeling is a good thing. Here's why because it's like the warning lights on the car or the smoke detector in your home. When it goes off, what's it telling you? Something's not right. Houston, we've got a problem. And in this case here, what's not right is where's my focus? Where's my attention? And so I want you to realize is when you're experiencing that fear, that anxiety, that that tension, that that frustration, that anger, and that that all of those emotions, they're not wrong. But let them be the cue. Let them be the reminder to ask the question, where's Jesus in all this? Can you find Jesus in your circumstance right now? Because chances are you've forgotten about him. Chances are that in that moment, you are an unbelieving believer. You're a believer. You're in Christ, but you're not exercising that faith. You're not exercising like I have been for much of this week, not exercising the truth that God is who he says he is, that God can do what he said he's going to do, which is look after me. Look after his plan and what's unf- going to unfold in this world that nobody can get in the way of what God's going to do. God acts, who can reverse it? Who can stop it? And so we begin to use that frustration to turn our minds back to Jesus, which allows us now to enter into that rest. You see, if it's unbelief that causes us to miss out that rest, what is it that's gonna allow us to enter into that rest? It's well done. It's belief, right? It's, It's trusting in him. And so that's what the the writer of Hebrews in 4 and verse 10. He says, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. So first, we need to stop. We need to rest from our own works. What does that mean? It means give up on our self-effort. Give up on trying to to make it happen. Give up on, on trying to pull it off on our own out of the flesh, out of our own energy, to engineer that solution and push the car. Instead, it's get into the car and turn the key. And it's that turning the key, that's that moment of faith that says, I'm going to trust you, Jesus. I'm going to trust the one with a beautiful name. That when, when you're seeing in this world, and, and this is what Joy was sharing with me during the worship time, that the world we're seeing, all of these horrible names being tossed around on, on each other. And yet we have this beautiful name of Jesus. And we can turn our eyes above the muck and the mire of this world and the fray and, and focus in on Jesus and turn the key and say, OK, Jesus, I'm going to trust you. And I, I, I want to hear from you. And now we can stop trusting in our own efforts to overcome that sin that we're struggling with. We can, we can stop our own efforts of trying to become acceptable to, to other people or maybe even to God and rest in the knowledge that he's already done it. We can stop trusting our own efforts to repair the relationship that we're, we're struggling with, maybe a marriage or a friendship or with a child. And we can stop trusting our own efforts to make life look what we think it should. And instead, we lean into him and we trust him. Now, what that means, how that looks, like, is anything, really. Maybe you turn on some worship music. I'm I'm convinced that the reason that we start every every church starts with some music at the beginning of the service is because the drive over was trouble. (laughs) Right. I mean, if you live in a house of more than one, chances are there was some friction this morning. And if you got little kids, I guarantee you there'll be friction. And, and then the car ride over, everyone's just, just, just everyone be quiet, just, right? Everyone's kind of at each other. And then you come here, and you're like, "How you doing? I'm fine, doing great." And the worship music begins, and we go, "Oh yeah, Jesus. Oh yeah, this beautiful name, this beautiful person who loves me." And our eyes begin to lift naturally up towards Him. So maybe you're at home and you're struggling. Put on some worship music. Turn up loud. Maybe just turn down quiet. Whatever you need in that moment. Many times what we've done at home is is we've just gone back and we've watched some of the worship music that we recorded when we were online. And and I get the kids, pick one they like. Pick your favorite. And they all just pick one. and, And we watch them. And we just, it's really cool and exciting to see the familiar faces. But what's great is to hear the music and the encouragement to lift our eyes back to Jesus. And when we've done that in our home, it's amazing how the anxiety and the frustration that's been high just begins to lower because we're resting in Jesus. Maybe maybe what you do is you you read your Bible. You pull the Bible out. You just start reading through things. It doesn't matter where because it's just, all of it's going to point us back to Jesus. Remember, that's what he said about scripture, that he says there's no life in the scriptures themselves. There's no life in the book, he says. It's the book that points you to me, who is life. And so we just start reading our Bibles. Maybe it's, maybe it's a, read a devotional. Maybe it's, it's call up a friend and ask them to pray with you. Or maybe it's just simply going for a walk with Jesus. And eventually all those paths ought to lead to that point where you're now going to talk with Jesus. And you can just begin to pour out to him all your struggles, all all your frustrations. If you're you're angry about the government's response to COVID and and you think there ought to be less mandates and less restrictions, tell him all about it. He wants to hear it. If you think that the protesters are crazy and they're not taking COVID seriousness enough and they need to be more restrictions, they need to buckle down, cry out to him and tell him all about it. He wants to hear it. If if you're frustrated about your family, about your spouse, about your kids, even your church, not here, of course, but but if you're frustrated with your church and and some pastors, (laughs) tell them all about it because he wants to hear it. And then, then listen. Listen to what he wants to say to you. And then you'll hear concepts and principles that you've been hearing, being taught to you here from what the scriptures are saying about who Jesus is to you in that moment. And listen to what he wants to say. Maybe he gives you another angle, another perspective on that. Maybe he says what you're saying is right, but, but he says, trust me, I know what I'm doing. And I know it looks bleak right now, but joy comes in the morning. And it'll be okay. Maybe he tells you just wait and watch. Maybe he actually tells you to do something, like write a letter to an editor. (laughs) Or, and and maybe this is the hardest, he just says, trust me on this and wait. There's nothing to do. There's nothing to change. It's just wait. That, by the way, as my friend likes to say, is the four-letter word of Christianity because no one wants to do it because we feel so powerless and out of control and God says trust me. Trust me on this one. I'm going to use what's happening even if what you're going through is painful. And what happens is now is we begin to enter into a rest. A rest that's not passive. A rest that's not just sitting on the sidelines doing nothing. We play a part. You see, the world, what they do is their whole mindset and mentality is we work in order to rest. Think about it. You work 20, 30, 40 years at your job, you save up for your retirement, and then you stop working and you enjoy life. And so the world's mentality is work and then rest. God says, no, 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 we're starting from rest. That's our beginning. This Sabbath rest, this permanent rest. And you now work from rest. You now act and do from resting in him, where he's the source and the power. And so now we're in the car, and we're driving along, and we're moving along, and we're making progress, but we're resting in the car, allowing the car to be the source of power. So you see a big hill, and you go, This will be fun. And you accelerate up the hill, and then you reach the top of the hill, and you think, This is gonna be a lot of fun. And you go down the hill. Under the speed limit, Adam, just so we're clear. Under the speed limit. And what's happening now is we're, we're finding a rest within our spirit, and within our soul. And that, that even then spills into our bodies. And you know you're gonna be experiencing that rest because you're gonna discover that peace and that confidence and that assurance and that contented soul that knows that God's in control, that knows the one who loves you and is working everything out for your good, for your best. That's the one you're trusting in. And you say, okay, Jesus, I want what you've got. Let's go. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for offering us rest in this crazy world. That it's not up to us to figure it out. It's not up to us to solve all this. Instead, what we can do is we can rest in you and find everything we need available in you, whether it be peace, whether it be compassion, whether it be understanding, whether it be forgiveness, whether it be love, whether it be patience, whether it be compassion, whether it be grace, or whether it be strength or power. That everything we crave and we need and we desire is there and available in in you. And may we trust that. May we trust that you are who you say you are and you'll do what you said you'll do. And we'll lean into you and enjoy the ride. In your name we pray, amen.
0: You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship podcast. Thanks for joining us. You would like to donate. Donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.